Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a proper warning. Uzumaki Bajunji Ito contains a lot of disturbing visual and narrative content, both which we discussed several times during the episode. And if that isn't your cup of joe, we understand, and we'll hope you return for our next episode. There we'll discuss Step by Bloody Step, written by Sai Sperrier and illustrated by Matthias Bergara and Matthias Lopez. And if you do happen to enjoy our show, we'd appreciate it so much if you leave a good rating in your preferred podcast app. Alright, let's get spooky. Hi, I'm Paul Duffield, a sentient collection of knitted jumpers who have learned to draw. Hi, I'm Joss. I'm an artist, a streamer, and I'm also secretly the Rat King. Ooh, nice. I bow. This week we'll be talking about horror classic Uzumaki by Junji Ito. There are some very disturbing images, more disturbing than I expected, uh, so read with caution. And if you haven't read it yet, you may enjoy the podcast more if you pause and read the book now and come back later. Kyrie lives in Kurozu-cho, a small town on a bay surrounded by steep hills, but something's not right. Slowly but surely, the town and its inhabitants are being contaminated with spirals and an obsession for anything spiral-shaped. Body horror and psychological horror meet in a bizarre ways as the town goes mad and Kyrie and her boyfriend are trapped inside. Yours is so good! Oh, thanks. <laughs> It's so to the point and really describing- mine is Mimi. Oh, yeah, go on. I want to hear your Mimi one. Is life constantly kicking you when you're down? Does there seem to be no end to this downward spiral called life? Then perhaps you can relate to Junji Ito's Uzumaki, but hopefully not. Because I sincerely hope your life isn't an endless battle against some twisted curse. May I offer the small comfort of, hey, at least you're not rapidly transforming into a snail because you're walking too slow. Yeah, this is a very, very strange book. So you had never read this before, right? I haven't, but its reputation preceded it. I'd definitely heard of it before, and uh, I know plenty of people who've read it, and I've definitely seen images from it. So it's one of those uh, one of those books that I've been meaning to read for a long time, and very happy to have finally got around to it. Do you wish that I had given you more of a heads up? Because I have to full disclosure. I am quite desensitized to a lot of horror stuff because I'm a horror junkie. So I'm, even though I don't watch a whole lot of movies because I'm also, ironically enough, life blessed me with being chicken shit, I still am pervertedly interested in horror. <laughs> <laughs> so do you wish that I had like handed, handed you a heads up? Um, luckily, I was already aware of exactly how disturbing this was. I'd been... I've seen a few of the worst images from it before, and I, I've sort of, you know, heard by reputation as well. Also, horror junkie here. I mean, I've watched Audition. Nothing can top that. I've only listened to podcasts talking about Audition because this is, <laughs> this is my weird <laughs> thing. Where since I'm chicken shit, I have watched a lot of horror myself. I will say I've played all of the old Silent Hill. I played plenty of Resident Evil. I've watched the classics like The Exorcist, The Ring, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But now, the older I get, and the less I watch horror myself, the more scared I tend to be again. And so I've kind of settled down with get the secondhand experience of listening to... For example, there's a podcast I love called Evolution of Horror, where they talk a lot about, obviously, horror movies. There's this Australian podcast called The Scaredy Boys that I love. And I can never get enough 
I can listen to three different podcasts talking to me about X and I'll still be like, num, 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 I want to know more. But I have yet to watch the movie myself, even though I really want to. But I'm just so easily frightened. And I feel like I'm the 1% too. I don't watch horror to be scared because I don't enjoy being scared. I watch it because horror so very often include elements that I adore, like the morbid, the occult, the bizarre, the taboo. But I could do without being scared. Uh, yeah, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, I've always been like really attracted to horror stuff and, and also very timid around it. I was very, very squeamish when I was younger. And I still am quite squeamish with really specific things. Like I don't like hyper-violent movies typically, even though I've, I've seen a large number of them and I can tolerate a large amount of on-screen violence. Out of interest, do you find reading horror comics more comfortable than watching horror movies? It's funny that you asked this because one of my notes from this comic is that the reason this really stuck with me so i read this first back in 2014 and it was the first time i was scared by a comic i hadn't read a bunch of horror comics or mangas prior to this i i do know that in my teens i've read the ring manga because that actually exists Uzumaki, I stumbled across online in this article where I think it was one of those typical articles like, hey, if you like horror, you should check out these masterpieces of comics. And Uzumaki just looked fucking bonkers. So I thought, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna give it a go. And I couldn't put it down. I kept clicking next and next and next. And it got to a point where I was dreading clicking next because I, it, it was getting really, I was getting scared of the page turner you know yeah absolutely i've got to say this is the first time i have ever been freaked out reading a comic it was there were some really visceral moments like some and, and not just because the images were gross and i didn't want to look at them it was a brilliant sense of like anticipation there's one particular moment i wonder if this got you too which was the first point in the book at which i was like oh yeah it's got me which is where shuichi uh kirei's boyfriend his mother is in hospital and she's trying to get rid of everything spiral around her and on her body and she cuts off her fingertips in order to get rid of her um the spirals on her fingerprints and that was pretty gross but then a little later shuichi realizes that there's a diagram of the human body and that the cochlea is spiral shaped you know the, the bit in your ear and when that happened, I knew where the story was going and mm. I felt it in my ears. Yep. I was like, oh, oh no, it's going to happen, isn't it? And I just, I couldn't turn the book. Like, and it teased it out. It didn't happen immediately after that. They managed to hide the poster and the fact that it played out like that was, um, it was brilliant. Yeah, it, it, it really absolutely had me with an extreme kind of like body horror reaction, which is the first time I've ever had that in a comic. Yeah, Junji Ito is definitely, I, I will say, it, he's a master of body horror. And if that is near Cup of Joe, which I will admit in movies, it is definitely not for me. I don't enjoy torture porn. I don't enjoy mutilations and stuff like that just for the sake of it. And it's not because it necessarily always gets to me. It really depends how it's portrayed. But I just don't get any entertainment value out of it. With Junji Ito, he just hits that little sweet spot for me where... It's insanely gross and sometimes very impactful, like what you just described. But I, I keep one reading on, you know? I want to know what happens next. Yeah, there's something weirdly beautiful about the way that he does these things as well. Like, he's, he's an incredible artist in a sort of an understated way. And a lot of the kind of imagery that's also body horror is sort of like bizarrely fascinating. 
And I've always had this particular relationship with horror going back to when I very, very first played Silent Hill 1, where I'm obsessed with this concept of simultaneous attraction and repulsion, where something's like there's a really kind of appealing aesthetic alongside something horrific. And that kind of attractive, repulsive element of horror is kind of the thing that keeps on pulling me back. Yeah. And it's interesting that you're mentioning the oppositions of being repulsed and almost like being aroused because I've always seen horror and pornography as kind of weird siblings because they're both treated as taboos, but they're also something clearly so captivating for humans because we seek out porn and we seek out horror. But a lot of people aren't willing to admit that out loud. And they're both about being kind of voyeuristic into something that a lot of people feel like they shouldn't be vocal about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's something that you you wouldn't normally see, something you wouldn't normally talk about, kind of flexing of the imagination, I guess. But yeah, this whole whole book is just jam-packed with that. But one thing that struck me about it, and I don't know if this is just a matter of the translation, because there are a couple of hilarious lines I wanted to pick out, which clearly were translations, mm. or if it's a matter of the actual tone of the original that's coming across truly in the translation. But there's a sort of like almost Saturday morning cartoon vibe to the way everything's framed. It's all very, very formal. It's all very sort of like the dialogue often describes what's going on in the panels. So it's, it's, it comes across as this sort of bizarre mix of, hey, Timmy. There's a kid stuck down in the well. Let's go and check out the well, Timmy. Oh no, now Timmy's turned himself into a spiral and his guts are hanging out. Oh. Wow, you you just like made my brain go ping because I have read a lot of Jinji Ito and while I always love it, there's always been this tonal thing that always felt a little jarring to me that I could not pinpoint. But now that you're highlighting it like this, I'm like, of course, because Junji Ito is apparently a big memer. And oh. I think he is big into humor. Have you seen this fantastic meme template where you have Hayao Miyazaki next to Junji Ito? And then you have, of course, Junji Ito making this fucked up imagery. And then you have Hayao Miyazaki making beautiful Ghibli romanticized <laughs> movies. But <laughs> Miyazaki seems perpetually fucking depressed and Ito seems like a happy cat girl. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've seen <laughs> every photograph of him that I've seen is is hilarious. He's just got this sort of like slightly surprised, happy expression on all the time. Yeah, kind of like, I'm just happy to be here and I'm doing my best. And obviously I'm not going to claim <laughs> to know this guy remotely because I don't. And I don't even know if he has a huge online presence. So I wouldn't know. This is all just based on photos and interviews and stuff that I've seen. But he seems like he has a lot of humor. So you pointing out the fact that this has like, almost like a Saturday morning cartoon vibe with a big slice of horror. It's so true and when you say that i like it more yeah it's it that's part of what kept me hooked in a way because there's sort of light delivery to some really heavy material that i think if it was heavy delivery of heavy material all of the time it might wear you down a little bit more in in an unpleasant way I know you mentioned you didn't read the stuff at the back but there are actually three short comics which are straight out humor comics about Ito creating Uzumaki, you know, in that way that sometimes manga authors do at the back of like a, of, of a book. They'll give you a little kind of like, oh, here's me with my editor sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's all about him getting obsessed with spirals. Whilst he was writing the book, definitely worth reading those. They're really funny. I just briefly skimmed them, but I have to be very honest that Uzumaki is a fucking Bible of a manga. It's very thick. So mm. by the time I was finally done with it, and this is my third read, I, I was a little spiraled out. <laughs> You've rode that spiral to the end. 
Yeah, I was like, okay, I live in this town now, time for a break. But I am very glad that you highlight the point about uh, the humoristic feeling, because I wrote down a note that there's this abrupt feeling that keeps pulling me out of it, and it has done with all of Ito's work. The horror keeps me so sucked in, and then the chapter just has this abrupt, weird-ass ending, where I'm like, it's kind of neatly tied up with this voiceover, and I'm sitting here, uh, okay, I, what the fuck? <laughs> I, yeah. I was just about to get invested in this boy turning into a fucking jack-in-the-box toy, but then it was over before it kind of started. And that's where your your point about it having that that kind of humor actually makes it make more sense to me. Yeah, and I was thinking it might be a format thing as well. This was originally serialized in a seinen anthology comic in Japan, and that's sort of like aimed at kind of older boys and younger men. And each chapter, I would guess, is one episode in one issue of this. And it's very much got that sort of 90s sitcom feel where no matter what happens, everything kind of resets at the end of each chapter, right up until maybe the last four or five chapters where really major changes from earlier on start reflecting themselves. It also gets extremely bizarre at that point, almost comically bizarre. It is funny, though, because it starts with a rapid increase of becoming more and more uneasy, and then it falls into this, and then it all ended kind of format, where I kept being thrown out of the loop, and then where you say it became comically twisted in the end, no pun intended on the spiral theme, (laughs) it's still... That's where I find myself the most invested, even though by then it's left all fucking bounds of reality. That's where I feel like the story flows the best, because it doesn't constantly wrap up with this voiceover, and then morning came, or whatever, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there was um, so there was a sort of a weird transition through the book where I was enjoying, at the very, very beginning, I was enjoying the sort of, you know, almost monster of the week style episodic nature of the comic and expecting it to reset every time then it gets into that period where a bunch of them learn to fly in tornadoes and it's all sort of strange and mad max and there's gangs of tornado riders going around and that was so off the wall that i laughed at a lot of it and and in a way that took me out of the story but then when it gets past that point where they try to escape the town up on the cliffs from that point onwards i was utterly gripped I think with because of the weird sort of like delivery and the episodic nature and clearly there's a lot of kind of the editors saying oh we want we need more of this it's popular come on with with some sort of judicious editing it could all flow together into a really disturbing whole I'd be really interested to see an adaptation of it do you, do you know if there are any Yes, there apparently was, I think, a TV series with real actors, or if it was a movie, I'm not quite certain, but there's been a live-action adaptation of Uzumaki. I have not watched this because uh, the original Uzumaki is quite old by now, it's from 1999, and the movie movie slash series is from around that time, but there is an animated adaptation happening as of right now, where there's a very short trailer that was teased back, I believe in 2019 or something, because this has been in the works for quite a while now. The way that the the animation studio has adapted Ido's very unique visual style into a moving format, it's just like, if the whole thing looks like that, I'm gonna, you know, I'm just gonna sit there and wank because it's gonna be so good. But the music that is paired with the trailer is 100% what I imagine would be in an Edo story because it's dark, jazzy, unsettling. It is just like, mm, it's so good. 
I have to admit, I'm also a little worried because recently Netflix did an adaptation of Ito short stories. Oh, that had an appalling budget, didn't it? Oh, famously, Netflix animation is a lot of the time wonky at best because, yeah, like you said, the budget for especially the anime department is fucking appalling. I watched, I don't know, seven episodes or something of it and... I got so annoyed that I had to stop. There's one scene where this beach monster is cut open because this beach monster has eaten a lot of people. And then all the people pour out of the the beach monster. And you can definitely tell how this would look in the manga if you're familiar with Junji Ito's work. It's going to look so bizarre and nasty. When I tell you that in the show, it looked like they had taken the Clip Studio Paint 3D dolls and just stacked them on top of one another and just <laughs> bleh, just like pushed them out of the sea creature. And I sat there like, am I? Is this? What? Is this actually happening now? I can fully imagine what that looks like. Yeah, I, I did hear that there might be uh, an ad- adaptation, like an animated adaptation. And, and the moment that I did, I was sort of skeptical that it would look any good. So I'd, I'd love to see this. But that really kind of highlights something in the art, which is the insane level of like detail um, that goes on in in some of these images. There's one particular one towards the end that I sort of marked out. Is it when they're actually under the city? That's the one, it's the first time you see the cityscape. It's 601. And wow, that's just such a beautiful, like it's all these tangled bodies down below and like these incredible spirals up above and the sense of light and, I love the visceral way he draws light in this. You can see light spiraling at one particular point when it's coming out of the lighthouse. And I don't think I've ever, ever seen an artist attempt to draw light spiraling. If this comic is 100% inspired by Starry Night by Fango, then my name is not Joss. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's so many. I think there's even a little glimpse of that particular painting in the spiral collection right at the beginning that Shuichi's father's ha- father has. So, yeah, I mean, if it wasn't an influence, uh, yeah, it was. I was going to say, if it wasn't an influence, I would uh, eat my arm until I became a spiral. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't, because Mr. Ito has proven that that works. Yep, rather disturbingly. But yeah, this is, it it was one of those books where I've, I've got a lot of sort of quite shattered impressions because it was this sort of ongoing sense of being pulled into something, really disturbed by something sometimes disturbed to the point of amusement. The Jack in the Box one was a perfect example where it revealed that he had a car spring inside of him from the from the car accident that he was in earlier. It made me want to laugh and also be ill simultaneously. It was, uh... <laughs> yeah, it, it very much is a tonal whiplash. I wanted to ask you what you thought of both the main character, Kirie, and her boyfriend, Suichi. Do you have any thoughts on them? I was going to ask you the same thing. Like My, my thoughts were, um, I've made a little note, Kyrie seems remarkably impervious to any kind of trauma. Uh, she's, she goes through so much, so much horrendous stuff. She's always the one who discovers the weird bodies. She's always the one who is right in the center of everything happening. And, and often the, these strange spiral obsessions focus on her bizarrely. But every time she'll scream and she'll be momentarily disturbed but then the next moment she'll be nice and chipper and happy again she's she's almost like a kind of a non-character in that respect she's just reacting to everything around her and then her quote-unquote boyfriend 
You never see any kind of tension between them. They just are together a lot of the time, and they say they are each other's girlfriend and boyfriend. But he is he's sort of mysterious to the point of being hilarious again constantly kind of like got this pained expression on constantly aware of how awful everything is and his sort of like constant darkness next to Kyrie's constant sort of chipper nature makes this weird sort of this odd duo that don't feel like they should be together yet yet they are what what did you think about them Oh my god, you saying that him being dark and her being light just made, again, my brain go ping because I have a page open that I wanted to talk to you about where there is a spiral visualized and it just made me realize that you wouldn't be able to see a spiral without the opposition of dark and light because then the pattern wouldn't form. Mm. So it's this weird balance, right? Between her being so stupidly happy-go-lucky, naive, ignorant and him just being the poster boy for My Chemical Romance. (laughs) Yeah. That kind of plays off one another. But I will say I don't enjoy either of them as characters because she basically doesn't have a personality and he has a very one-sided personality to me where by the end of the story, none of them have really developed anything. And uh, yeah. And (laughs) the page that I picked out was 174 because by this point, A lot of fucked up stuff has happened in the town, right? We've had several weird incidents. I think, if I'm not mistaken, by this point, Suichi has lost both his parents. They have seen a lot of fucked up nonsense. And Kirie is visiting Suichi and they're talking. He's being gloomy. And then he starts talking about the spiral again and how how this town is cursed. And she proceeds to say, not again. And I'm sitting here. Girl, you gotta pack your bags, grab your boyfriend, and get the fuck out of Dodge. Because how can you say, not again, this guy going on about spirals, when you've seen all the wacko shit that has happened so far? Like, what? How desensitized to horror are you? Yeah. That was the that was the overall impression I got about her, and, and it it is revealed later that they actually physically can't escape the town. I think they could have done with bringing that fact in earlier because it, it creates this bizarre sort of aspect to the story where not only does she put up with all of this stuff and also kind of remain remarkably neutral, she makes zero attempt to leave at any point. And Shuichi, as much as he says, "We've got to leave, we've got to leave, we've got to leave," he sticks around presumably for her. And there is a sort of, I did I did find, despite the fact that I didn't connect with either of them as characters, I did find the ending kind of weirdly touching where they they finally reach the very, very bottom of this spiral city and everything's been so horrific and they kind of give up and, and let the spiral happen to them and they, they kind of curl, all curl together. That that moment was sort of, it was quite sweet in a way because you mm-hmm. don't, there's zero intimacy between them before that point. They have a kind of a very, um, oh, Teehee, he's my boyfriend. We sit next to each other sort of relationship. <laughs> kind of like primary school. Yeah. And that's part of the, this whole sort of like weirdly juvenile feeling to the whole thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I've got a bunch of bookmarks in here, I'm, I, but I've forgotten why I put them in. I'm going to be interested to sort of open this up and see. Oh, yeah. So the first one was just a really lovely visual moment 
One of the first most shocking pieces of body horror is when one of the characters slowly develops a spiral that eats their face. And there's this fantastic bit where you finally see the spiral on their face fully revealed and it's effectively this huge hole that goes all the way from the very top of the mouth to the very top of the scalp. But you can tell from the depth of the spirals inside that the spiral goes back further than the back of her head. And that's just such a great visual, especially in a comic, because you can imagine achieving it using SFX in a, in a film or something. But for a comic to create that sense of like depth drawing you in and for that to reflect the story, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, I agree. Also, this character's whole transition is probably the most iconic imagery from Uzumaki outside of Uzumaki. Because if you, if you ever ask someone, do you know Jinji Ito, this or Tomie is definitely what comes to mind for people. And Tomie is the girl who has a very beautiful face, like holding it with her hands. And then from the top of their head, a devil version kind of of her face is poking out, trying to get free from her own head. Oh, yeah. I think there's both of those pieces of imagery of, of kind of escaped into the wild as it were you know they really deeply influenced imagery elsewhere they're definitely the two pieces of junji ito i've seen the most tattooed <laughs> oh right actually one thing i wanted to ask you i had this really strong feeling in the earlier chapters less so later that they felt like morality plays but where the moral was so heavily obscured you, you couldn't figure it out did you did you get that sense of t- as well do you mean that th- they kind of served as warning pieces of uh, 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 don't drink or don't smoke that kind of thing yeah yeah there's specifically the one where the, the like the battle of the hair where the hair takes over kyrie's hair starts like curling and taking over and displaying itself for everybody who becomes fascinated by it and another girl gets obsessed with being more popular than kyrie and her hair starts doing the same thing and they end end up in this ridiculous battle that drains them of their life and that one more than any other seemed to have a sort of like um it reminded me of those sort of norwegian rules you've told me about before um, oh yeah you know, don't the, stand the out, law of yante yeah those those that's the one it made me think of that you know it almost felt like a cautionary don't stand out don't do your hair don't attempt to be the center of uh, of attention because this is what happens to you it destroys you it consumes you and that was the only one with a really obvious moral but a lot of them had they felt like they had that same format even if the moral wasn't particularly clear i think without at all claiming that i'm a good expert on japanese culture because i am definitely not I do think it is somewhat of a reflection of a generalized Japanese culture that don't stand out, don't make a fuss, don't make a big deal, just float into society, just do your job, just go through the motions of life, which is very similar to Norwegian behavior, I will say. <laughs> so right. that wouldn't surprise me if it's just a reflection of what I perceive to be stereotypical Japanese social norm, but I will say as someone who's read quite a lot of Junji Ito, what I pick up much more is that he has kind of a shitty portrayal of women in general because you notice that both of your examples were female characters. Yeah. And he does this quite a lot where he writes very dumb or annoying or alluring women without a lot of redeeming qualities outside of the plot-driving quality because with both of the... The, the woman with the spiral in her face and the woman with the hair, they are very shallow women who 
both of them just crave attention, which is a very typical trope for Junji Ito to make because Tomie, the other book that I believe he even made before Uzumaki, that is about a very shallow woman who's obsessed with beauty and also mm. attention. And this is a trope in his work where women are kind of reduced to either being very alluring and they're kind of like in dangerous eye candy or they're this ditzy dumbass like Kyrie who you just sit there like... Can you have any driving factors and qualities, please? <laughs> and then the men tend to be either this emo dweeb or uh, leery and gross, which uh, reminds me when you said that you were laughing at the whole Mad Max part. And I, I actually wanted to ask you if you felt that you reading this as a man plays into it, because I was very uneasy the first time I read this, because the only thing I could think of was these women are vulnerable right now. They're young girls facing a lot of gross-ass dudes where there's no law or no society to keep them in check anymore, and it's carte blanche. That was my first impression reading this part of the book, was that these women are in danger. Yeah, I mean, I definitely picked up on that. And there was one particular very tense sequence where a gang is trying to get them to, to eat this snail meat, which used to be human, that was absolutely charged with that kind of energy. I think I was reacting in that sequence more to the fact that the entire plot had become so unhinged. Uh, it still contained moments of that kind of real intense horror. But actually, this has made me realize something, which is that in comparison to other manga and anime of the era, there is remarkably little sexual horror in this. And especially given that it's body horror, and despite this kind of kind of restricted role that the female characters have, there doesn't seem to be a particularly kind of um, fetishistic focus on the female body or excessive or constant nudity. And those are things that, you, that are just plastered all over manga, from especially seinen manga from the same era. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I will say that sometimes... To, to take the man in defense as well. He does have stories where the male character made a very unhappy ending because he's going too far and the woman turns out to be some monster just eating him whole or something. Kind of like a <laughs> vagina dentata scenario. Yeah, yeah. I feel he definitely punishes the punishable characters. He's not always just making shitty women and that's it. I'm, I don't want it to sound like I'm accusing him of being completely one-sided but i will say it is an unfortunate pattern of a lot of his stories is that women are definitely often a side character and even if kyrie is arguably the main character of the story i mean she's the driving narrator and everything she is very weak yeah it's and it's as weird because it comes from this sort of fact that she both reacts extremely kind of like she only ever screams or runs away or turns to other people for help in the moment. But overall, she's stronger than everybody else because she never gives in to the spiral. Like, she's even less bothered by it than Shuichi is, who's another character who manages to resist all the way to the end. But there's something about her that perhaps um, it's meant to be her innocence or perhaps the author didn't think of it at all. But ultimately, she handles the situation with so much more grace than everybody else. Yeah, she's almost like this biblical character at times because when everything has gone complete to shit and the town has collapsed and everybody arriving at the town trying to help out are getting stuck there and everything, she kind of just shows up as this Jesus character like, oh, I'll help you, my poor lost children. I'll take you to safety. And she's so weirdly unfaced by it all. Yeah, it's a very strange... I think sometimes you get these instances where 
it's impossible to tell in horror whether something's been actually poorly executed or underthought, but that it adds to the atmosphere somehow that you end up with this kind of um, a good a good example is is let's say the voice acting in Silent Hill Two, uh, which a lot of people have <laughs> talked about, which is iconic. It's iconic. You can't call it technically competent necessarily. But it just adds to the surreal atmosphere. And I felt so much of the sort of ways in which this story might fall down in any other context just lent it this extra level of surrealness and absurdness that that I really that really appealed to me and, and kind of kept me reading just as much as the horror did. Yeah, I agree. I actually wrote down that the storytelling is dreamlike at times, almost Lynchian in a way, where yeah. it's so nonsensical but it still drives the story forward and you're you're intrigued and you want to keep going to see where it all ends up but at sometimes it kind of feels like you're reading someone trying to explain you their nightmare yes yeah it really does have that especially cuz nightmares have that quality don't they where you just in a way you just accept what's going on at face value and it's only after the nightmare's over that you go hold on a moment that was horrendous or uh or they change in the middle, and, and for some reason you don't question the change in the nightmare. You just think that it's odd after you've experienced it, and that dreamlike quality is definitely there. I absolutely felt it. You said that your first time of feeling really uneasy was the, the whole sequence with the mother in the hospital. But the very first time where I was scared to go next was onto page 40, which is when they discover the father in the big barrel, when he has turned himself into a spiral in the end. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a really intense image. It's this double pager. It's the, the mother and the son looking into the barrel, and onto the left you see the entire father just completely squished together. That's when the book really hit me with, oh, shit, it's gonna be it's going to be like that, huh? Okay, it's going to be actually disturbing and not just weird and uneasy. It's going to be downright terrifying. Because it's not only that the drawing itself is disgusting, it's the fact of the... For me, it's the matter of the whole emotional impact of the, the family finding the father like this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's this sort of... Um, the fact that Kyrie and Shuichi and Kyrie's family often manage to just about escape everything actually heightens that tension because you've seen it happen to Shuichi's family already and it's it's sort of the danger that, that the city represent or the town represents sort of lurks over Kyrie's family for the rest of the book after that moment and looking at this page again has just made me some realize something that Ito does with incredible skill that I hadn't appreciated until now is is that you've got this juxtaposition of the simple stylization on the faces of Shuichu and, and his mother, where they're the only sort of like pops of pure white on the page, and then the highly rendered volumetric cross-hatching that he's got in all of the body horror scenes really kind of punches home that transformation that people go through. Like the more rendered they are, the more obsessed by the spiral they are and the more simplistic the stylization, the, the kind of the purer they are or the less corrupted they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ito's craftsmanship with a pen makes me just bow down in awe. The fact that this man still has hands attached to his body after all this cross-hatching <laughs> blows my mind. Yeah, 
And I wonder if there's, um, I, I don't know if this is just me, but I think that artists have a particular relationship with uh, the body and frailty that doesn't necessarily exist in other industries to the same degree, because art breaks you down slowly. If you don't make efforts to look after your body, to stretch your hands out, you do, you, you get... I mean, I went through a period where I literally became locked in in the pose that I was drawing in. That was how the physiotherapist described it to me. My tendons and my muscles had begun to atrophy around my drawing position, which, hey, it's, it's a hunch, it's a spiral. And I wonder whether there's a certain amount of that kind of um, drawing on that kind of obsession that artists have with their work and with the material that they're working on that translates to a, to a sort of a physicality that's captured in here. And it definitely resonates with me, at least. Also, flipping through, I was just looking for other examples. I was reminded, because there's so much that happens in this that I'm just bound to forget a lot of it while we're talking about it and then remember it later on. There's this kind of Romeo and Juliet story here with the two opposing families in the shed, whatever you want to call it. Oh yeah, I remember that one. There's a boy from one family and a girl from the other family, and they love one another, and then of course the rest of the families hate one another and don't want these two to be together. And then in the end, they, while they're, because they're several times trying to just run away, and during one of these adventures they see a pair of mating snakes, and at first the girl goes, oh no, they're fighting. And he's like, no, they're mating. And it's never gross or anything. It's just very matter-of-factly. But then by the end of that chapter, the two of them, still trying to run away, cornered on the beach, the two of them wrap together like a pair of snakes and then jump into the ocean. And we never see them again, but it's weirdly beautiful. Like, I really like that story. Yeah, I remembered that bit quite vividly when they slipped into the ocean. It, it seemed to depart from the rest of the book in that they actually had they had some different life beyond the town that they went off to. They didn't everything didn't end with the obsession. And in a way it mirrors what perhaps it, it it's what made the ending a bit more kind of like tender. Because again, you don't see much intimacy in this at all. Any kind of love language, you're just like, whew, okay. So there there is love <laughs> in this world. That's nice to know. <laughs> Spirals are my love language. <laughs> I had a Another thing in my notes that I wanted to ask you. Do you think that this story was a huge inspiration for Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse? Oh, damn. Well, now you mention it, there really is a similar sort of feel going on there. That yeah. kind of the obsessive quality of both of them. I'd be really surprised if Robert Eggers hadn't, at least, especially with the, the like symbol of The Lighthouse and that whole chapter with The Lighthouse being in Uzumaki. And the obsession with the kind of with the light looking like an eye. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I don't know if you if you knew this, but when the lighthouse was launched in Japan, you got a leaflet where Junji Ito had made bits of the movie into a comic. No, really? There's yeah. a Junji Ito comic yeah. of the lighthouse. I Damn. will fully admit I went to eBay today because I knew about this from the start, from the moment it came out. Because I'm quite quite a fan of Ito. And The Lighthouse is one of my favorite movies of all time. I went to eBay today while doing research and I almost slapped by on this hundred pound overpriced bullshit. <laughs> because of course it's now a, a collection object. 
Yeah. And yeah. I was like, I, I kind of need, I, I, I refrained, but hey, pst, uh, if any rich uncles are listening to this and want to go to <laughs> ko-fi.com slash Jossum and, you know, uh, humor my unhealthy obsession with collecting rare art pieces, then um, hit your girl up. Simply write spiral on the donation and Joss will know what it's for. <laughs> so one one thing I meant to mention, um, thinking of sort of more comical things, going back to the translation and sort of the role of the translation in making it feel more kind of weird, sort of Saturday morning cartoon naive. Um, it's just a couple of lines. This is in the one where the, the boy's being bullied for being like a snail mm. uh, and is slowly transforming into a snail at the same time as this. His bully yells at him, Holy cripes, slow ass. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> I don't know who was translating this, but that, that's an amazing, <laughs> amazing oath. And then, you cost us the game, you glacial turd. <laughs> the glacial turd had me guffawing. Like, I... <laughs> I was like, who wrote this? Who translated this? A boomer? What's going on? Yeah. This is some totally radical dude. This is that kind of language. Yeah. <laughs> Glacial turd. <laughs> we need to reclaim that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this is probably the same translation as it received originally, I'd imagine. And I do remember it being released in like the early 2000s over here. I believe actual literally in the year 2000. Right. Okay. Yeah. Which is pretty fast for a manga at that time. It must yeah. have been pretty influential in order to get a translation like that. The companies that handled that kind of translation around that era were staffed by a really bizarre collection of people, some of whom were sort of like hardcore fans, desperately trying to bring rare material over, and some of whom were just in it for like a money grab and really didn't care about what they were, um, what they were translating. It's a very strange publishing scene. For any kids potentially listening to this, and by kid I mean anyone younger than 30, if you didn't grow up in the era of fan dubs and scanlations, you oh. have not frauded the wild, wild west of incredible, loose, liberal translation of Japanese to English. Because I, I've seen some anime where the character, like, I'm pretty sure at some point I saw in the Naruto episode where Naruto was flat out cussing. I was just, mm, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. And likewise, with a lot of anime translated around that time, especially a, a particular company called Manga Entertainment, who are still around and occasionally release things, they just they were obsessed with grittifying them. So every other word was "fuck, damn, shit, <laughs> cock sucking balls," you know. And this comes from exactly that era. Um, <laughs> Oh my god, we were so edgy back then, Paul. Oh yeah, yeah, Ugh. for sure. I recently picked up uh, Cyber City Oedo 808, which is, oh, mwah, it is the absolute pinnacle of bad good dub. It's, it's beautiful and still stands up today as just this wonderful cultural artifact. And it's not quite as extreme in, in Uzumaki, but I'm definitely getting a sense of that kind of not particularly reverent translation going on here. Someone's just doing a job. Yeah, and that actually made me wonder because I did reflect upon this while reading that some sometimes the language feels really stilted and it makes me go, oh, this 
This isn't how people actually converse together. And it makes me wonder if that is a translation issue. I'm not sure. Where we're kind of left feeling like sometimes these characters aren't actually talking to one another, but through one another or to the audience. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, oh, Shuichi, it's dark now. And I'll be like, yes, I can see that from the panel. Why are you telling me? <laughs> Detective. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. And again, I'm assuming some of that's embedded in the original and some of it's been introduced at translation level. What makes me most psyched for the potential anime adaptation of Uzumaki is the fact that I can only imagine it's going to be slightly distilled. Like they're going to cut out some of the excess. They're going to weave together the entire story probably a little more seamlessly than the hard cuts of the chapters in the manga. And to get to see that cohesive flow, mm, oh, I'm mm. so pumped. Yeah, if you got rid of some of the more extreme stilted dialogue and you got rid of those hard jumps and maybe injected a bit more character into Shuichi and Kyrie and, and really made you invested in their relationship ahead of time, this could be absolutely like visceral gut punch of a story. I mean, it's already a visceral gut, gut punch of a story, but imagine that times by 10 again. Oh, just imagine this with sound effects, like actual audible sound effects where, for example, you have the scene with a couple of the students have turned into snails. Two of the boy students turned into snails and then they start mating. Oh, yeah. And they have eggs and the teacher discovers the eggs and stomps them. And even when reading it, I went like, oh, that's so like, because I'm not good with snails. I find snails Hideous, sorry for any snail lover out there, but they gross me the <laughs> fuck out. And then just stomping on these eggs. And then I imagine this sound effect actually in my air hole. And I'm like, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> well, this gets back to what I was saying the other week about drawings that contain their own sound effects, just because they're so evocative. And like that sequence, this book is just full of that. It's got plenty of its own sound effects, which have actually been translated in, in the edition that me and Jaws are reading. But it's so evocative of the sounds, you almost don't need them, which I thought was amazing. One thing I wanted to ask you about is because this is a very formal manga. It's sort of um, very kind of contained in boxes in a way that sort of we talked about last week with The Magic Fish. But I felt the flow from panel to panel was very, very different, much more inspired by, so I guess, cinematography and much more kind of moment to moment in terms of transitions rather than theme to theme or place to place. How, how did you react to that element of it? I agree. And I picked up on that too, because it did actually dawn on me that, huh, this is just like you said, quite contained with a lot of boxes, like a lot of very rigid panels. But just as you say, a lot of it is much more weaved into one another, where it kind of reads like a comic format of a storyboard. And I just randomly flipped open page 227, which is just such a good demonstration of this, where this older woman is trapped in her own whirlwind. So she's spinning in circles on the spot. And you just understand that that's what's happening immediately between these, like, one, two, three, four, five, six panels of her. It's so easy to see that that's what's happening. And you feel kind of trapped in the spin with her as you read, even though the panels themselves are just squares. Mm. So did you say 227? No, sorry, 275. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and this is something that you get in manga a lot. 
a lot of people describe it as a slow pace. But for me, it makes the reading experience faster because there's less like piecing together that occurs between the panels. Yeah, exactly. You aren't confused. Yeah, you're you're seeing you know often often panels that only have a second or two in between them in order to allow a full action to play out. And that's something that kind of really draws me personally into a reading experience. I'd often find lacking in a lot of comics that I end up feeling quite distant from. And I was wondering if maybe that was what you were picking up from the magic fish that's present here, despite the rigid panel layouts, but not as present in the magic fish. Yeah, and also, how do you phrase this without sounding like you're insulting one and praising the other? Because I'm not looking to do either, but Trung's style is so different from Ito's like visual drawing style. Yeah. And Ito has this more typical manga approach where you can you can see that this has to be time efficient. It's just like, because this has a, a scheduled release pace, I can only imagine, which is... The whole thing was made in a year. Yeah, yeah, which is insane because this is 600 plus pages. And yeah. there's this incredibly unhealthy work ethic being a mangaka that we could talk about for hours. And I think any modern comic maker, or at least I hope I should say any modern comic maker is of the opinion that those working conditions are inhumane. But <laughs> yeah. sadly, in a way, it lends to this very alive penmanship where your lines just, they have to be fast and loose. But in that way, kind of, we discussed this when we were talking about Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, where you felt that the, the influences of manga was so present in the comic but kind of lacking the execution of a manga because a manga has to be so much less quote-unquote perfect and pretty. And this is where I'm struggling phrasing this thanks to my ESL and not wanting to insult anyone. I think Junji Ito is insanely good at drawing and sometimes his panels are just breathtakingly beautiful. But there's something about his very, very loose and fast drawing style that is completely different from Trung again, where Trung has this very obvious illustrative background and everything is beautiful and everything is very meticulously rendered. And there, there seems to be a very precise thought behind everything that when it comes to Junji Ito, you can tell that because of those time restrictions, it has to go like wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And that it works. Yeah, absolutely. And it means that the art takes on, especially when it becomes more detailed in moments of body horror or distress or focus, there's this sort of scratchy obsessive quality to the line work that matches the obsessive quality in the story. And that really works nicely. Mm -hmm. To roll it all the way back to you asking if I got the feeling that there was this kind of morale thingamajig to all of Uzumaki. And I guess to me, the obvious big takeaway is that obsession in any way is unhealthy, that you can always be too into something. Yeah, and as a comic artist, I say amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like after reading Uzumaki that you're interested in picking up more Junji Ito? Oh yeah, I'd love to. Uh, maybe not for a while. I've had a, a very concentrated fill of this book over the last few days. And I'd be interested to see how much like breadth and depth his other work has, whether it's sort of more of the same or whether I'm going to find something new in other titles. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to come back to it. You know, maybe we can schedule in another Junji Ito book for much later down the line. Yeah, I am definitely down to to pick this guy back up again because I, I really enjoy his work. And having this chat with you has, like I've said, really highlighted some things that I was maybe struggling with that I'm now seeing in a new light. Oh, 
That's brilliant. That's the best kind of chat. Also, thank you for uh, for prompting me to read it. I think uh, this has broadened my comic world, which I'm happy for. No, I feel pretty spiraled out. Unless you have something, God, why am I not doing stand-up comedy? Uh, unless you have something you want to add to this discussion of Uzumaki. Oh, okay, right. I'm going to share one more thing with you. Uh, you didn't read the comic at the very, very end. You, you told me there's a, um, a lost episode, which I think was drawn but never published for some reason. Okay. And it focuses on Shuichi discovering a galaxy that nobody's ever seen before and everyone becoming obsessed with galaxies until eventually this galaxy beams radio waves into someone and he vanishes entirely. But there's something really uncanny about this story. It was drawn in 1999, and the Hubble Space Telescope had only just come into service at that point. It had only been up there for a little while. The pre-existing images of galaxies were pretty blurry. We had a decent sense of what they looked like. And Jinji Ito has drawn these distorted galaxies and he talks specifically about the missing radio waves. And recently, a new telescope, the uh, JWST, has observed a number of galaxies in the radio wave spectrum. And the galaxies in that spectrum look just like the ones that Junji Ito drew. Um, uh, um, I know. <laughs> Mr. Ito. <laughs> For anyone out there who wants to check, have a look at the last chapter in this edition of Uzumaki, and then Google uh, Phantom Galaxy JWST or M74 JWST, and you'll see what I mean. Do you think that's how he's capable of drawing all of this? Because he sees something we don't? <laughs> he sees in some extra spectrum. Like he's in the fourth dimension. Yeah. <laughs> he has come to us from another place and time. And maybe that's why there's this strange, like, slightly stilted delivery from one of his characters as well. Yeah, okay. This is now my favorite conspiracy theory. Yeah, I, I think we just cracked it. I think we just learned that Junji Ito isn't from here. He's from <laughs> some other dimension where seeing this fucked up shit does not fuck you up. And instead, it makes you a very meme little cat boy. So, since... Paul is tossing in the towel, I'll be taking over and saying that in two weeks, we'll be discussing Step by Bloody Step, written by Cy Spurrier and drawn by Matthias Bergara and Matthias Lopez. I'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. <sighs> okay, so let's, let's, uh, let's chat about next week. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. Two weeks. No. One day. One, One day. day get it right. One day our bloopers will not continue saying next week. <laughs> in two weeks, not in a fortnight, in two weeks, we'll be talking about step by step. <laughs> Can you tell we've been recording for one and a half hour? So in two weeks, we'll be talking about step by step. In two weeks. Sorry, I, I swear I'm sober. I'm just slightly sleep deprived. Yeah, same. <clears throat> In two weeks, we'll be talking about step by step. <laughs> should, should I try? Yeah, go on, give it a go.